0: Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony
1: welcome back to episode number 31 of the Michigan Constitution podcast in today's podcast we're going to conclude our discussion on article 1 section 11 of the Michigan Constitution I appreciate your patience through all these podcasts I'm taking you through this journey because search and seizure protection is the cornerstone of our federal and state constitutions it's important that you get a better understanding regarding how and when a search and or seizure will require a warrant. But before I go any further, you're a spoonful of ease. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not, it is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well-served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matters. All right, our first case for this podcast is People versus Crawl, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1977. And it addresses the idea of bringing a suspect back into their home after they've been arrested on the street and a search is done in the defendant's bedroom. This is a really, really long fact pattern, but I think it's incredibly informative and honestly, really interesting. So settle in, kids. At approximately 9 p.m. on Tuesday, May 11th, 1971, the Detroit Police Department received a radio message directing them to investigate a robbery and shooting at a Detroit bar. They arrived at the bar at approximately 9.15 p.m. There, they were told that sometime between 8.30 and 8.50 p.m., two men armed with handguns had robbed the bar and killed the bartender. One of the handguns used in the crime had already been recovered, they were also told that one of the robbers had been wounded, captured, and taken to Detroit General Hospital. At approximately 11.30 p.m., two police officers went to the hospital and spoke with the wounded robber. He told the police that the other robber's name was Claude Crawl, and that Mr. Crawl was the one who had shot the bartender. He gave the police a rough description of Crawl and the address of an apartment in Highland Park where Crawl could be found. He also said a third man was involved in the robbery, but he did not name or describe the man or say where the man could be found. Detroit officers Ewald and Kelly left the hospital and radioed the Highland Park Police Department for assistance. Soon, a Highland Park scout car with three uniformed officers joined them and the group drove towards the Highland Park address where Crawl was said to be. They arrived at this address shortly after midnight. The address was a two-story apartment building. The wounded robber had said Crawl would be in apartment 204. The Highland Park officers warned Detroit police officers Ewald and Kelly that there had been trouble, including shootings, at this apartment building in the past. One Highland Park officer drove the scout car into an alley behind the building and remained with the car. Now, Detroit Officers Ewald and Kelly, along with the remaining Highland Park officers, approached the building's front entrance. They pinpointed the location of apartment 204, and Officer Ewald positioned himself in an alcove from which he could observe the apartment's window and the front of the building. Detroit Officer Kelly and the two other uh, Highland Park officers, they continued upstairs to the apartment. When Detroit Officer Kelly and the two officers from Highland Park reached the apartment, Officer Kelly knocked on the door. One of the occupants of the apartment opened the door and admitted the three policemen into a small hallway. Now, to have your mind's eye picture the layout of the apartment, it kind of goes as follows. So straight ahead from the hallway, once you come in through that door, it led to a living room and a kitchen. Apparently, about three steps from the door going you know th- down this hallway on the left-hand side, uh, there was an entrance into a small bedroom and all of the occupants of this apartment immediately began scurrying all through this apartment. The three policemen ran through the apartment looking for crawl and trying to bring the other three occupants under control. Meanwhile, while this was going on inside the apartment, Officer Ewald was outside and observed from his position downstairs. He saw a man climb out of the apartment's window and jump to the ground. Officer Ewald shouted for the man to halt and identified himself as a police officer. The man walked a few steps and then halted. Ewald determined that the man that was walking away from him was Claude Crawl, the person they were seeking, placed him under arrest and ordered him back to the apartment. Now, approximately two minutes after Officer Kelly and the two officers were admitted to the apartment, Officer Ewald and Defendant Crawl appeared at the front door of the apartment. The door was open and Ewald directed Kral, who was now handcuffed, to go inside the apartment. Officer Ewald turned Defendant Crawl over to the control of one of the officers, but another man and woman were still in the living room and they were milling and, or, or running about was, was the term that the, that, the, that the case used. Milling or running about or running around. Essentially, they said there was much confusion. And this is all key. This is why I'm really slowing down to talk about it. Milling or running around that there was much confusion. So, Officer Kelly and another officer were trying to persuade the occupants to sit down and stay still. At this point, Officer Ewald, looking in the bedroom, you know, the one that was about three steps down, saw that there was no one there. So, he goes in, he looked under or on the bed, it wasn't totally clear, but he ultimately saw and found a small black barber's case. He opened up the unlocked case and found a chrome-plated handgun, live and spent shells, barber's tools, and identification cards belonging to Defendant Crawl. Officer Ewald did not look anywhere else in the bedroom. He seized the barber case and its contents and took these items to police headquarters along with Defendant Crawl and the three occupants, all of whom who had been arrested on narcotics charges. Defendant Crawl was charged with first degree murder after confessing to the shooting death of the bartender. Now, before trial, Defendant Crawl filed a motion to suppress the items seized at the apartment. After an evidentiary hearing, that motion was denied. The items were admitted into evidence against Crawl at his trial. Several witnesses identified the gun as looking like one of the guns that was used in the robbery. And a ballistics expert testified that tests run on the gun and the bullets found at the scene of the robbery showed that this was the gun that was used in that robbery, the one that was found. Kroll testified that he was a barber and that his identification cards found uh, with his gun were his, so he admits that he owns it. Now, based on this fact pattern, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled that this was a reasonable search and seizure by the police officers and did not violate our Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 11 provision. The court's majority held that under these circumstances, it was a reasonable cursory search which was performed by Officer Ewald To ensure the safety of everyone in that apartment. The court found that the lack of police control and the dangerousness of the situation justified his proceeding without first obtaining a warrant. The court points out
0: all of the following. When Officer Ewald entered the apartment about two minutes after the raid began, the situation was not under police control. An unidentified man and two women were milling or running around the living room of this small apartment. There was a great deal of confusion. The man could have been the third robber. The other handgun used in the crime was not accounted for. The officers had every reason to believe that they were in a life-endangering situation. There had been past trouble, including shootings, at the apartment building in the past. It was dark and late at night. And they were looking for a murderer and an accomplice who might well be prepared to kill again.
1: In the case at hand... Our Michigan Supreme Court wrote, although the police knew where defendant Kroll was and had already arrested him, three other persons, one of whom could have been the third participant in the bartender robbery and murder, these people are all still milling or running around the small apartment. The court's majority said things were clearly not under control in that apartment and the police had every reason to believe their lives were in danger. More importantly, the court held... Officer Ewald's cursory search, limited to the discovery and opening of the Barber case, which the court said was a spot where it would be logical to hide a small handgun, this was of a minor intrusion into the defendant's privacy and was necessary to ensure that the police had control of the other handgun used in the robbery. This then ensures it's not going to be used against the police, particularly when the officers still did not have physical control over the occupants of the apartment. All right, so maybe perhaps said with a little less legal ease. If any one of those occupants in the apartment knew about the gun in the barber case, they could have gotten into that room, grabbed the gun, and shot the police officers. Therefore, while the occupants are still running around, while there is still an unknown gun or two unaccounted for from the robbery and murder, our Michigan Supremes said looking at that barber case without a search warrant was completely reasonable under the circumstances. For that reason, the court upheld the evidence found pursuant to the search and allowed the gun to be used as evidence against defendant crawl. Our next case is People versus Plant Faber, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1981. And I got to say, I think this is a really, really interesting case because you've got defendant Plant Faber smuggling drugs from Arizona to Kalamazoo, Michigan. While at the Tucson airport, narcotics officers notice defendant Plant Faber acting suspicious. So they flag his luggage. Literally, they they smell the luggage around the seams and the zipper And they smell marijuana so based on the ability to smell the pot they open up a corner of each of plant faber's two luggage bags and find 14 bricks of marijuana in one bag and an unknown amount of marijuana in the other bag now because the plane from tucson to kalamazoo was boarding and about to take off the tucson narcotic officials they seal back up the luggage They watch the bags go into the cargo area of the plane. They watch defendant Plant Faber get on the plane, and they watch the plane depart. Immediately thereafter, they call the Kalamazoo Police Department and explain what they found. They give a description of Plant Faber, and they ask the Kalamazoo Police to arrest Plant Faber for possession, intent to distribute, and other assorted drug charges. When Plant Faber arrives at the Kalamazoo airport, the plainclothes police officers identify him based on the description of him. They watch him claim his luggage off from the baggage carousel belt area. They see him walk outside to a taxi cab and see him put his luggage in the trunk of a taxi. At that point, once the cab pulled away from the general area of the airport, the Kalamazoo police stopped the taxi, searched the luggage in the trunk, and arrested defendant Plant Faber. To be clear, neither the Tucson nor the Kalamazoo police ever obtained a search warrant for the inspection of defendant Plant Faber's luggage. And this was the point of contention in this case. The court found that the marijuana discovered in the luggage should have been suppressed because it was a product of an illegal search. The court notes either the narcotics officials in Arizona or the Police officers in Kalamazoo, Michigan, could have held the luggage in their possession until a search warrant was obtained. After all, if Plant Faber went back to Michigan while the luggage was kept in Arizona, well, there's no fear that the defendant Plant Faber is going to destroy the evidence. After all, it's like 2,000 miles away. Alternatively, said our Michigan Supreme Court, if the Kalamazoo police officers had reason to believe that there were drugs in his two suitcases, why not go to a magistrate during the six-hour flight home to Michigan and obtain a search warrant while plant Faber was 30,000 feet up in the air? As such, the Michigan Supremes held that the Arizona police could not have searched the luggage once they had it in their custody and control by permanently removing it from the conveyor belt because the exigency is the mobility of the luggage. And once it's in police possession, the police can't argue that they can open the luggage due to mobility emergencies because they have control of the luggage. Remember, exigency is a limited in time situation which justifies a warrantless search I I, I previous podcast talked about the scenario where uh the bank robber gets followed by the police and runs into his home and shuts the door behind him that is an exigent circumstance where potentially the, the the bank robber is going to get a gun to shoot at the police or perhaps uh burn the money to to get rid of the evidence right that is an exigent circumstance mobility is considered to be an exigent uh, circumstance When you've got this luggage that's about to go on an airplane and fly from Arizona to Michigan, that does become an exigent circumstance, unless because the police officers could smell the marijuana through the seams and the zipper of the luggage and ultimately found it. Well, then our Michigan Supreme Court is saying there's no longer an exigent circumstance of mobility. They have control of the luggage. So the arizona narcotics officers could have arrested plant favor right then and there after they searched the luggage that search was a good search in the eyes of our michigan supreme court where the arizona officer screwed up was putting the suitcase back on the conveyor belt and allowing him to go home to michigan it was at that point Michigan should have obtained a search warrant and, frankly, likely would have obtained said search warrant based upon the information provided to them from the Arizona narcotic officials. But the exigency of mobility was not at issue for the Kalamazoo police officers because they were watching Defendant Plant Faber. They saw he never tried to remove the 14 bricks from his luggage. They knew he wasn't trying to dispose of the luggage. Mobility was no longer an option for the Kalamazoo police to use as an exception to a warrantless search. They even quoted an Arkansas case, which dealt with the exigency of mobility, which reads,
0: The exigency of mobility must be assessed at the point immediately before the search after the police have seized the object to be searched and have it securely within their control. Once police have seized a suitcase, the extent of its mobility is in no way affected by the place from which it was taken.
1: For those reasons, the court overturned Plant Faber's conviction because they believe the trial court should have excluded the drugs found in his luggage. Our final case for Article 1, Section 11 will be People v. Parker, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1983, and this case addresses an arrest without a warrant and its associated search and seizure. It was alleged that defendant Parker raped a Detroit woman in her car, but left his wallet behind after he left. In addition to leaving his wallet, the woman was able to successfully scratch the defendant's face such that it gave the police a reference point when searching for the defendant himself. After raping the woman, he stole the $12 uh, in cash that she had on her. He put that in his shirt breast pocket and subsequently fled. One of the things that I should point out real quick is when he approached the woman, he had what he said was a knife in his pocket and he pushed it up against the woman to get her to ultimately go along with what it was that he was demanding from her. So, so essentially we're talking about his face his wallet, his $12 in his breast pocket, and the the alleged knife. When the woman went to the police, the police officers were able to look through Parker's wallet to identify who the assailant was and what he looked like. Important to the fact pattern here, this rape took place at quote unquote during the late evening, and he was later found and arrested at 2.45 a.m. So this means that the rape took place sometime around 9.45 p.m. On one evening, the rape victim goes to the police. They they search the wallet. They determine where this fellow lives. And at 2.45 a.m., they go to the address based on the driver's license. Uh, they had the apartment manager open defendant Parker's door. There they discovered that he was asleep, and the manager was able to identify that the person sleeping in the bed was indeed defendant Parker. Now, because he matched the description of the assailant as described by the rape victim, and because he had a laceration beneath his right eye, just as the victim said he would have, they woke him up, placed him under arrest, and searched his shirt to find the $12 in the breast pocket of his jacket, where she said he had put the money. But they also found what ended up being a nail file in his jacket pocket, which, if you'll recall, was what he had told his rape victim was a knife so as to not fight him. Defendant Parker testified at this trial that the intercourse was consensual, and they had a fight afterwards leading her to make this allegation against him. Ultimately, he does get convicted for the rape and appeals all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court. Time out, because before Defendant Parker's case ever got to trial, There was a pretrial hearing that the defense attempts to suppress that cash and nail file that was found, saying that at no time did the police ever attempt to obtain either a search warrant as it related to, you know, the cash and the nail file, nor did they ever attempt to get an arrest warrant for the arrest of, of defendant Parker. Additionally, Defendant Parker argued that the time between when the alleged rape occurred, again, about 9.45, and when they came to find him at 2.45 a.m. was too much time between there being any sort of exigent circumstances to necessitate coming to his apartment without either a search warrant or an arrest warrant. So maybe said another way, there was plenty of time between the alleged rape and his arrest. It's not like they were chasing him from the scene or that he was even attempting to skip town. So the main question for the Supreme Court to tackle was this.
0: The essence of the exigency which would excuse the failure to obtain a warrant is the existence of circumstances known to the police which prevent them from taking the time to obtain a warrant because to do so would thwart the arrest. And that was the controlling decision in this case, said the Michigan Supremes. They
1: conclude that the facts do not support a finding of such exigent circumstances as would eliminate the need for an arrest warrant. Here, in our case, there was over a five-hour delay between the time the police were given a physical description of the complainant's assailant and when they arrested defendant without a warrant. More so, the Michigan Supreme Court said that the prosecutor never offered any countervailing circumstances which justify the failure to secure a warrant, and that it's not reasonable for the police to enter the defendant's room without a warrant. For that reason, the case was remanded back to the trial court to present a criminal prosecution against defendant Parker without the aid of the $12 found in his pocket or the nail file that he used when telling his victim that it was a knife. All right. Listen, that's going to do it for episode 31 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. But some of you may be appreciative of this. I don't know. Uh, That is also the end of our discussion on Article 1, Section 11, Search and Seizure. I hope you found this information to be as interesting uh, as I do, because there are times where the government must be controlled over how it can come up and find evidence. And when they don't follow either the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution or Article 1, Section 11 of the Michigan Constitution, the courts are not going to allow that evidence to be submitted as evidence against a defendant. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so either at TonySnyder.com or I'm on Twitter at Tony Snyder. I'll talk to you next time.
0: The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.